Hey, welcome back to From Aid Arbitration. And I wanted to start this episode off by saying thank you so much for uh, the love being shown to the podcast. Uh, a lot of people commenting on it on social media and also on the ratings. I, I really appreciate that. Like I stated when I started this thing, I had a few few friends that I respect highly that were encouraging me to do this. Not real sure if I wanted to do it. I was considering it. To tell you the truth, my oldest son, he's the one who talked me into doing it. We were just talking one day about union stuff, and, and he said, you know, Dad, you should do a podcast on it. When he said that, that's when I seriously started thinking about doing it and not knowing if anybody would ever hear it. If uh, talking to an audience of none or one or a thousand and one, I had no idea. But I decided to do it, and I really appreciate you know the kind words being said about it. Like I said, I'm not an expert by any means. I've been doing it a long, long time as far as grievances and preparing grievances and with arbitrations, you know, about 140 arbitrations. So I kind of know what I'm looking for. And that's kind of what, when I talk about these episodes or things in these episodes, that's that's what I'm trying to, to get across or things that I look for in arbitration. So uh, hopefully it helps you. You know, it's definitely a resource, I think. And uh, But again, thank you so much for the kind words about it. With that being said, let's get right into it. Have y'all ever seen the movie 12 Angry Men? I love that movie. It's a fantastic movie. It was set back in 1957, I believe it was. But watch that movie if you've not seen it. And it kind of is what we deal with through the grievance procedure. It starts off with this young man is charged with killing his father. And the whole movie is set in the jury room. And these jurors are determining this young man's fate. It starts out that 11 of them are convinced that this young man is guilty of first-degree murder. And there's one lone gentleman who just didn't buy it. And he starts throughout the movie just poking holes in the prosecution's case. That's kind of what we do. When we get disciplined, regardless of how bad it is, we just poke holes in as much of it as we can. You just keep poking and keep poking and keep poking, and hopefully you can poke enough until you find that one thing or two things that an arbitrator will hang on to. That's what we do. So with that being said, that this episode is one that you may never deal with. It may never come up, but I've dealt with it a few times. Uh, I've dealt with it in arbitration before, and it's when management uses criminal statutes against us in the charge and that's one thing that we when we get the charge if we see that management has decided to use a criminal statute against us we have to address that because you cannot use a criminal statute against me period criminal statutes are used if i'm found guilty of a crime you can use that criminal statute against me uh, it even states that in in the lm and i'll get to that in just a second but Here's what I'm talking about. You get a carrier and they bring you a letter of charges. And you're looking at that letter of charges and on there you see something you've never seen before. And it's probably something along the lines of this. Your actions are in violation of the following sections of the Employee and Labor Relations Manual. 661.2, Application to Postal Employees. In addition to the statutes listed in Title V, Code of Federal Regulations. 
Part 2635-901-902, the following statutes and regulations are applicable to all employees in the Postal Service. Prohibition against fraud or false statements in a government matter, 18 U.S. Code 1001. You'll see that on there, and you're like, what? What in the world are they talking about? So you're looking on down through there, and they say that in the investigative interview, you are not truthful with management, and so they're charging you with 18 U.S. Code 1001, making false statements in a government matter. Well, you can't do that. You can't charge me with a violation of U.S. Code. Here's what it states in the ELM. 661 Statutory Provisions. 661.1 Laws Referenced in this Manual. States this, the laws mentioned in this manual are listed for information only. Nothing in this manual constitutes an interpretation or construction of these laws which might be construed as binding the United States Postal Service or the United States. Failure to mention a statute does not excuse any person from complying with a statute. And then if you look on 661.2, Application to Postal Employees, it has all of those U.S. codes, every one of them. Then you look over on 665.16, and here's what I'm talking about, the criminal statutes. When they list one of these in the letter of charges that we have violated. 665.16, Behavior and Personal Habits, and you're well aware of this, but we'll read it. Employees are expected to conduct themselves during and outside of working hours in a manner that reflects favorably upon the Postal Service. Although it is not the policy of the Postal Service to interfere with the private lives of employees, it does require that postal employees be honest, reliable, trustworthy, courteous, and of good character and reputation. The Federal Standards of Ethical Conduct, referenced in 662.1, also contain regulations governing the off-duty behavior of postal employees. Employees must not engage in criminal, dishonest, notoriously disgraceful, immoral, or other conduct prejudicial to the Postal Service. Listen to this. Conviction for a violation of any criminal statute may be grounds for disciplinary action against the employee including removal of the employee in addition to any other penalty imposed pursuant to statute. When they use a criminal statute against one of our brothers and sisters in a letter of charges, get that section of the ELM and use it against them. And then you're going to get on Wikipedia, and you're going to look up that that code that they're talking about, that they're referencing, that U.S. code. Get on Wikipedia, pull that up, print it off, and put it in the file. Because we're going to show an arbitrator that has nothing to do with what the carrier is charged with. And I'll give you a for instance later on on when my formal A had to go represent somebody. But in El Cori and El Cori, they talk about this very thing. And this is what we're going to ask for. It says this on uh, How Arbitration Works, page 622. Here's what they state. Concerning the quantum of required proof, arbitrator Russell A. Smith has observed that in general, arbitrators probably have used the preponderance of the evidence. Now, that's any arbitration. It's, it's basic that the arbitrator is going to use the preponderance of the evidence rule. That's, that's just basic, okay? Or some similar standard in deciding fact issues before them, including issues presented by ordinary discipline and discharge cases. But arbitrator Smith also noted that a higher degree of proof frequently was required where the alleged misconduct is of a kind recognized and punished by the criminal law, and he concluded, It seems reasonable and proper to hold that alleged misconduct of a kind which carries the stigma 
of general social disapproval as well as disapproval under accepted canons of plant discipline should be clearly and convincingly established by the evidence. Reasonable doubts raised by the proofs should be resolved in favor of the accused. This may mean that the employer will at times be required for want of sufficient proof to withhold or rescind disciplinary action which in fact is fully deserved, but this kind of result is inherent in any civilized system of justice. Then they go on to state this. In fact, arbitrators have often recognized that proof beyond a reasonable doubt should be required where the alleged offense involves an element of moral turpitude or criminal intent. Moreover, where the offenses of this type, management may be required to prove by a higher degree of proof both the commission of the act and the existence of criminal intent. With that being said, when management uses a criminal statute against us, we are going to ask in our contentions that the arbitrator raise that quantum of proof to beyond a reasonable doubt. That's exactly what we're going to ask. And I've done that before in arbitration. When management has used criminal statutes against one of our brothers and sisters, I said this is a criminal statute, which means that management feels that there was some kind of criminal intent. And being as they have chosen to charge this brother or sister with a criminal statute, which means that there must have been some kind of criminal intent, I'm going to ask that you raise the quantum of proof to beyond a reasonable doubt. And we're going to use that against management. Whenever you see a violation or any kind of charge related to a criminal statute, use that against management because they don't know what they're doing when they're putting that in there. They're putting that in there to intimidate us, to scare us. You know, when you get that charge, you're like, my God, they're charging me with a criminal act. Well, they're dumbasses. So use that against them when they do that. We have to. I had an arbitration. It was uh, in 2014. This carrier, he had restrictions that he could get off due to stress. So he takes off one day, and he owned a business outside of the Postal Service. He takes off one day, and management shows up at his other place of business. And they got their phones out, and they're recording. They walk into the business, and here this gentleman is sitting in a chair. And they go up, they ask him a few questions, and then they walk out. And they terminate this guy, saying that he was working outside, taking leave, and working at this other business. And they use all of these federal statutes against him. I mean, it was four or five federal statutes they used against this guy. And so even though we didn't raise that contention earlier, being as management had used, had used the federal statutes against him, I was able to print all those federal statutes off. And when I go into the hearing, and when it's time to cross-examine, I start laying all these federal statutes down in front of uh, the supervisor and the, and the postmaster. And obviously they had not read these federal statutes and how they did not apply to the situation. Because when I have them read those things, and I said, can you tell the arbitrator, please, how he violated this statute? When you read it, it's obvious that he did not. And so every single statute I put in front of him, management had to acknowledge that he did not, in fact, violate these federal statutes. They sound good when you read them, you know, like that making false statements. You're like, well, he lied in an investigative interview, so we're going to use this against him. That doesn't pertain to this. When you get a charge with a federal statute, criminal statute, print that criminal statute off of the internet and put that in the file. That's going to help the advocate a lot, okay? Here's what the arbitrator said when he addressed it. And this is Tom Mayer. It's uh, C31519, C31519. It's back in 2014, 
And this is what he said. It is a risky business and a slippery slope when non-professionals use provisions of law, especially provisions that could be used in criminal proceedings, in a form outside of the courtroom. At the very least, it raises the expectations of the fact finder in matters of evidence and proof, and in addition, the level of sophistication of the proceedings. Modern-day arbitration became more prevalent during and after World War II as a form to resolve disputes in a less formal environment than a court of law because the courts were overburdened with lawsuits. This allowed knowledgeable non-professionals to engage in dispute resolution in a semi-formal form with a binding outcome. In the case at Bar, management not only relied on postal regulations, they relied heavily on legal statutes, and they quoted from them in pursing charges against the grievant. Now, he threw out the discipline, but that's how strong it is when we raise the contention about management using criminal statutes against our brothers and sisters. So, where are we at? You get a letter of charges. You look on there, and you see something you've probably never seen before, some type of Title 18, U.S. Code, something or another. Don't just dismiss that, Okay. Don't dismiss that. Do your homework on that. Get it. Research it. And then you're going to go into that informal A meeting. And you're going to lay that down in front of the, the supervisor or station manager. And you're going to have them answer for it right there in the informal A meeting. All right? You're going to have your questions made out. How did Corey Walton violate this fraud and false statements in a government matter? Well, he lied on the... In the investigative interview. All right, here's 18 U.S. Code 1001. Let's read it together. We're going to read it together, and then you're going to say, Now, tell me again how that pertains to what happened in that investigative interview. Because it does not. You're going to hold management accountable for the things that they put on that charge. We've talked about the charge in the earlier episode. It has to be true and correct. Hold management accountable for the things that they charge our brothers and sisters with, especially when they choose to be smart or cute and put a U.S. code in there. Hold them accountable for that. And tell you a story. There's a shop steward down south of here that management went after. And they falsified documentation on this shop steward to remove her. And we called them falsifying it. This is in another state. But this shop steward was kicking management's ass in the grievance procedure. She was devastating management. And so they, they falsify these documents and try to pin it on her to remove her. I asked the business agent if he would assign my formal step A, whose, his name was Jason Leith. I call him JB. is his nickname. Asked him to... Uh, assigned JB as an outside steward for the informal and formal A meeting, which he did. JB's very good. So he goes down there to represent this shop steward. And when he gets the charge, he notices that there is a criminal statute in the charge. And this is what he does. He gets on Wikipedia, like I was just telling you about, and he prints out what that is. And this is what I had read to you earlier as it came off of his contentions where it says uh, your actions are in violation of the following sections, the Employee Labor Relations Manual, and they cite that criminal statute, prohibition against fraud and false statements in a government matter, 
18 U.S. Code 1001. He gets on Wikipedia. He prints out the language of what that is. And, and this is what it states in part. The jurisdictional element of the crime is defined as the right to say and the power to act. It applies to criminal investigations such as false statements made in response to an inquiry by an FBI or other federal agent or made voluntarily to an agent. That's what they're citing against the shop steward. So he goes into the informal meeting. He says, are you a federal agent? Supervisor says, well, no. He said, was she questioned by federal agents? No. Were the postal inspectors involved? No. Was the OIG involved? No. Was she charged criminally? No. Does she have charges pending criminally? No. So he hands him the U.S. Code, like I just told you to do in your informal meeting, and he said, then how in the hell can you charge her with U.S. Code 1001 when everything it pertains to you just said didn't happen? And, of course, they sent that up to the Formal A. But when it got to the Formal A, the Formal A had to throw it out because you cited a criminal charge against somebody who, first off, wasn't charged criminally. And, secondly, you're not a federal agent. And here's his contention. You remember that El Cori and El Cori I just read to you? Here's his contention on it. The union requests the standard of proof necessary to sustain the charge of falsifying documents for financial gain against the grievant be set at proof beyond a reasonable doubt. That's money. That's money right there. The union contends falsifying documents for a financial gain is a serious charge constituting criminal conduct with intent to defraud the Postal Service and therefore the burden of proof should be set at the highest level. In this case, Miss Jane Doe has 18 years of dedicated service as a lifeline to the American people. There's your tenure argument. That's, that's fantastic right there. Has a bank of goodwill. We talked about that earlier too. And has been accused of criminal and morally reprehensible conduct. That's setting the stage right there. The union contends the beyond a reasonable doubt standard must be met by management. He's holding management accountable for the charge they put against the carrier when they used a criminal statute. That's beautiful. Miss Jane Doe's reputation should not be shattered by employing a lesser standard. Management has accused the grievant in attempting to defraud the Postal Service by falsifying documents for financial gain. Management cannot brand Miss Jane Doe as an ordinary criminal in the eyes of her family, friends, and fellow co-workers by the submission of less proof than would establish her guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That is how you do a contention <laughs> against management who wants to be a smartass and put in a title, uh, a U.S. code against us, a criminal statute. You hammer that ass, and that's how you do it. Again, we're poking holes in management's case. We're poking as many holes as we can. As many holes as we can. Just keep poking, keep looking, keep prodding, keep reading. Every single thing that you have that management gives you, keep reading and looking and thinking, and it'll come to you. I'm telling you. But when you see that U.S. code, when you see that criminal statute, Immediately go and look that up online. It doesn't apply. Formulate your questions. And when you go into that informally meeting, hold that supervisor accountable. Hold them accountable for what they did. If it's the postmaster, hold them accountable for what he did when he wrote that charge. Okay? 
It's a little bit different today. Criminal statutes, you may never deal with it in your entire history. But you may. You may. And when you do, be ready for it, okay? Any kind of criminal statute, look that thing up. Get your questions ready. When they do that, use that El Cori and El Cori language. Uh, plagiarize that thing. And say that you want that proof to be beyond a reasonable doubt because management chose to charge this carrier with a criminal statute, which means that there had to have been some kind of criminal intent. Okay? When that goes up to arbitration, that advocate's going to get down on that. Trust me. <laughs> they're going to they're get funky on that in arbitration. Good advocate's going to get down. Okay? Next episode, we may be talking about some Section 115 out of the M39 handbook. That should be kind of kind of fun. It'll be a short episode. But today, it's about poking holes. It's about looking at those uh, that charge. You find a criminal statute and uh, taking management to task on that, okay? Uh, hopefully, this has helped you. You may never have to deal with it. But if we do, we're going to be ready, all right? Y'all take care of yourselves out there. Have a fantastic rest of the day, and I'll talk to you on the next episode. Take care now. Bye-bye.